Presented by Kamiuk Ukulele Magazine, this is Ukulele Stories. Hello, I'm Cameron Murray and welcome to Episode 8 of Ukulele Stories. In 2003, a documentary film called Rock That Uke was unleashed on an unsuspecting world. It was fairly early on in what is now termed the third wave of ukulele popularity, and I was voraciously consuming everything I could about the global scene. To me, the film was a revelation. After strumming away in my bedroom in South Africa and Australia for more than a decade, I realized I wasn't alone. I wasn't the only weirdo who was fascinated with the uke, and I certainly wasn't the weirdest of the weirdos. In 2004, the writer and co-director of Rock That Uke came to Sydney to show the film at Rose Turtle Oetler's groundbreaking Ukulele Land event. The moment I met William Preston Robertson, or Bill, I knew I had found a kindred spirit, so it was a great pleasure to reconnect with him for this episode of Ukulele Stories. I hope you enjoy our chat. Bill, nice to see you. I actually am seeing you this time because we're on Skype. It's very it's, exciting. It is. I don't usually see my guests, so it's quite oh, really? Are they all on the phone? Generally on the phone, just because it's been easier. But this seems to be working, so let's go with it. You've never known if any of the people you interviewed were naked when you were talking to them. No, I mean, I hoped they were, but... Uh, yeah. You, you know. <laughs> <laughs> all right, sorry. That's all right. Okay, well, I actually watched Rock That You last night. I mean, in preparation also just because I like watching it because it's, it's a fantastic film. But we'll get to all of that later. Uh, I want to start with your childhood in Georgia because Georgia to me, I, I kind of said this to Daniel I ate the sandwich. He lives out in the Midwest. Georgia to me is kind of a, all I know about it is from films. You know, I think a lot of people outside of the U.S. and even outside of the, the South just think of it in those kind of broad strokes. So what actually was it like? I grew up uh, in Savannah. I was born in 56. And so I grew up in Savannah, Georgia. Um, You know, my formative years were all as a kid. My prepubescent years were in uh, the 60s. And there was still, there was still a lot of racial tension. My parents were civil rights activists. Uh, They did lunch counter sit-ins and that kind of thing. And so uh, the civil that was sort of the dominant um, experience. The culture of racism is odd in that uh, the language that often is spoken between whites is that it'll be a, a racial joke, and it's almost like you know the way Turks exchange cigarettes you know, when they meet or whatever method of cultural sort of exchange, often, you know, a a racist joke or a racist slur, and you see the other person laughs. So ironically, it was a very, you know, uh, a childhood barren of laughter for me, um, and uh, a lonely one. So, yeah, it was tough. I don't live in the South now. I left at the age of 17 uh, to go to a a hippie boarding school for a year and uh, and in Massachusetts. Uh, the, th- the problem with the with all of this and talk is that the South is in particularly Savannah, Georgia, is a beautiful place. It's on the coast. Savannah is a port city, sits at the mouth of the Savannah River on the Atlantic Ocean. And uh, it's 
there's a lot of marsh and little barrier islands, as they call them, with live oak trees and moss, you know, uh, Spanish moss hanging from them, which is sort of a iconic kind of image. And yeah, sure. the city dated back to 1733. And uh, so there were, you know, cobblestones and buildings that had been there forever. Lo enormous amount of history. Azaleas planted all over the place. It's a beautiful place. It really is beautiful. It's just that it was also, for me, sort of oppressive. And I left, you know, this, as soon as I could, I got out and lived in New England for a while and then Minnesota and then Kentucky and then California and now here in New York City. Where does the ukulele come into this then? What What is your earliest ukulele memory? My earliest memory. So my mother played the ukulele um, in the, uh, I guess, the late 40s, I guess the late 40s, early 50s. And she had a McAfee. And it was one of those, you know, plastic ones that had, uh, and it was <laughs> even greater than that. It was, you know, how they created, and because the ukulele is such a complicated instrument to play, there was an attachment where you could punch buttons and it would do rudimentary chords for you. She had that. And she, she would sing with, you know, her friends in, uh, I think she in college and she kept it with her uh, apparently up until the age of when I was two years old and I grabbed the ukulele while my dad while my dad was uh, uh, taking a nap on the couch at the time there was a uh, a cartoon called quick draw McGraw and he was a horse it was a Hanna-Barbera cartoon he had a a uh, a character that he would play sometimes that was based on Zorro, and it was El Caban. And basically, he looked like a horse dressed like Zorro with a guitar that he would then hold and hit the bad guys over the head and yell El Caban. And it was big, you know, strings popping and everything and a big wow, wow, wow sound. It was hysterically funny, of course, to a two-year-old. I took said ukulele, and I did my impression of El Caban to my father as he lay, and I, I broke my mom's ukulele. My dad's head bled and everything. I always found um, that moment, uh, it, it was important in many ways, and on just an edible uh, level, that I would take my mom's ukulele and, you know, attack my dad with it at the age of two. It set us on a path that uh, really played itself out almost entirely. Nobody, you know, plucked their eyes out or uh, I didn't marry mom or anything. But those tensions were always there. And it was always I've always suspected that my attraction to the ukulele in its weirdness is rooted in that moment where <laughs> where I broke my mom's ukulele over my dad's head. You think um, it's a bit Freudian? I'd like to think that it's Freudian. But what ended up happening was I, I, I took, um, and this is a little bit of a digression, but it sort of explains something about it. I, I did take band. I mean, my mom would often talk about, you know, I, admit I loved that little ukulele and, but it's not like she got another one, and it's not like there was a lot of music in the house. 
uh, my mom was a feminist historian and my dad was a physician um, who was uh, very intellectual, read, read more than he did any other activity. And then they did their activism and stuff. But anyway, so I took band and I played the clarinet because they'd sort of choose the instrument for you based on how well you blow into whatever mouthpiece. And the uh, clarinet was what I was given, and I, w I was really terrible at it. I liked the sound of it. I just, you know, didn't learn anything about music. I knew that you stomped your foot and you played enthusiastically along with the other kids playing Merry Widow Waltz and that kind of thing, you know. And But I, I really sort of was always a poor student. Uh, er erratic was the word that popped up on my report cards the most. And so I, I didn't know anything. I, I couldn't tell him what a whole note was or a quarter note. And this is after like three years of taking band because, you know, you're just in a group of other kids <laughs> making a lot of cacophonous noise and following along and who who cares, you know? Uh, it's one of those things where every now and then the, the guy feels, well, I got to pretend to be teaching these kids something. And so he'd ask people to explain, you know, what note they were. And you'd live in a little bit of fear that you would be asked because you didn't know, you know? Mm -hmm. And then finally, after three years, I was asked. And I got kind of nervous about it. I might have been able to hazard a guess, but I was just seized with paralysis over, you know, and and he kept then asking simpler and simpler questions to see where my level of ignorance would, you know, bottom out. And really, there was nothing I could answer to him about music and, and what things were called or any of that stuff. And so he looked down grimly and all of these people who taught music or guys who are in the local symphony, they don't want to be teachers. They're augmenting their salaries. They're bitter about, you know, that on the weekends they play Mahler and during the week they play Mary Whittle Waltz with, you know, 10 year olds. <laughs> so he finally just said, Mr. Robertson, these are questions you should have been able to answer in your first year. Put up your clarinet. And it was really awesome because. He waited. <laughs> he let me like push back my folding chair, you know, screech, and then kind of walk all the way across this room and kind of click, click, and then <laughs> click, click, and put the whole thing up. And then had me walk all the way back to my chair. And then it was wow. now, Mary Widow Waltz. <laughs> you know, I mean, it was sort of. It was a level of humiliation for me that uh, made me uh, not pursue uh, the clarinet the year after. And yet I had an interest in music. I was just, you know, uh, lazy. And so the other influence, so that story is sort of a bedrock thing. That's there, right? Okay. Then I'm a teenager and I'm watching a movie. Now, I do know that I, I think by then Tiny Tim was making the rounds and stuff, um, and he was an oddball, and everyone was laughing at him on, on Rowan and Martin's laughing. But I saw a movie called A Thousand Clowns. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with it. It was based on a play. Mm. That was actually my inspiration that got me interested in the ukulele. It's about a uh, – it's from like 1962 or something like that. Black and white. Jason Robards 
is a guy who wrote he wrote for a uh, children's show with a clown uh, and that was his job and he finally couldn't stand it anymore and he quit he is was the I think the I don't think he was the father I can't remember he was the uncle or he was the guardian to this young kid who was more mature than he was but he had this tremendous sense of fun even though he was unemployed he would go out in the day and you know every morning and yell to the people on his block in New York that the quality of their garbage was really inferior and they needed to up their game he would just do crazy stuff like this and his his apartment was filled with all sorts of interesting uh you know curios and and stuff like that. He was just a very funny, fun-loving guy, albeit imbued with a certain sadness because it's Jason Robards, right? And so the, the plot of the thing is child protection services people are interviewing him and, you know, are concerned about the kid and all this kind of thing. So it was, an, it, it was one of those 60s, you know, I'm rejecting the man and, you know, counterculture. And But one of the things he does is as he woos this protection services woman and a romance starts, he brings out a ukulele hmm. and he starts playing. Yes, sir. That's my baby. And there's a part where he's singing it. And then it's a whole interlude in the movie where he starts singing it really quietly and sort of almost sadly, you know, and sweetly and her voice over starts singing with him and stuff. That was tremendously influential to me. Uh, because this both being funny and sad at the same time as his character was and him playing the ukulele seemed perfect. And that's in the story. It's in the play itself that he brings out ukuleles. And anytime that you see photos of people doing revivals of the play, it's always a scene where they're standing there with a ukulele. I, I actually saw apparently Tom Selleck did it. In I don't know, some dinner theater production in Chicago or something. And there's wow. Magnum P.I. holding a ukulele, you know. It was sort of the ukulele and, and a thousand clowns are really sort of inseparable. So at that point, I realized it began to go in my head that, you know, it might be it seems easy to play and it has this quality of quirkiness to it that appealed to me. And and what stuck with me was not just the oddness and not just people thought, well, that's really different, which is what they thought with Tiny Tim. But the Murray Burns aspect of it made me think this is um, a deceptive instrument in that it's both happy and sad and you can use it to express that you're different and that there is an innocence to it at the same time. So I kept thinking for years, you know, I might want to play the ukulele, and I would mention it to my mom. And so finally there was a really horrible – I'm getting ready to go to graduate school. To uh, I went to the Iowa Writers' Workshop, and I'm on the verge of it. My younger sister is in college. Older sister has gone with her husband someplace. My mom <laughs> – it's Christmas time. My mother – uh, gets a terrible case of diverticulitis and needs to have an operation, emergency operation to remove, you know, part of her colon for it. I can't tell my younger sister because she's, uh, you know, at college. My dad falls apart emotionally and I'm like 
cooking for him and I'm doing the laundry and all this stuff while mom is in the hospital. I have to drive to Iowa, find a place to live. It's like, I don't know, it's 20 hour drive or something. And then I had to immediately, and oh, while I was driving was when John Lennon was assassinated during that trip. And so wow. I come back and I'm sitting there in this hotel room in Iowa and I'm watching people mourning and weeping unbelievably and then singing old Beatles tunes that are actually sort of upbeat, but they're weeping. And I'm going, this is an amazing moment in history of pop culture and grief, sort of, you know, and that weird clashing of these two aspects of, of life, you know. And so I go back and I'm still, you know, my dad's decompensated even more. And it was really just a grim time for me, you know. My younger sister comes home and, it's, uh, and, and the tension is eased a little bit and mom has the surgery and she comes out okay on it. And then it's Christmas Day and we're all sitting there and I had gotten her a little Norfolk pine and I tried to do what I could to make it sort of Christmassy for her. Unbeknownst to me, she had called up her, her women friends and said, I need you to go buy Christmas presents. So I'm sitting there Christmas Day after this horrific season and I open a box and there's a ukulele. Wow. And I look at it and, you know, she did what she could. There's no tuning pipe, pitch pipe. I have no idea how to play it. It's, it's untuned. And all I remember is sitting in the hospital room and I muted the strings and I just kept going like that. Now, and, and then I took it with me to graduate school and started, you know, I got a pitch pipe and started playing. But what was interesting to me was that years later when I made Rock That Uke, uh, as you having just seen it, and Travis Harrelson is telling people how to learn to play the ukulele. And he says, the first thing you need to do is find your strum. And he suggests muting the strings and just doing that until it comes to you. And I realized that I that basically, you know, the circumstances had presented that scenario to me. So that's uh, still a good tip. I, I tell people that all the time. And what's funny is how many people actually don't get get it. I mean, to me, it was sort of a natural thing to then you just start washboarding out, you know, rhythms and stuff. It's amazing how many people don't get that. And I and, and I don't know why, because I've tried to get my sisters you know, to learn to play. And uh, they're just very self-conscious about the strum thing, you know. So. Yeah, strumming seems to be the most difficult thing for a lot of people. A lot of people can pick much better than they can strum. See, I don't pick. Yeah, I didn't for a long time, and I found strumming always a lot simpler. Yeah, mm. you do both, of course. You're very good. In fact, i got to tell you, since 2004, I was pretty impressed because, I mean, you you play really well now. I mean, you played well then, but you play really well now. So, uh, but when I went to graduate school, I, you know, then I was like really horribly depressed. I was living in the kind of depressing, uh, you know, it was depressing college living in the middle in Iowa in January. Um, I didn't know anybody. John Lennon was dead. Uh, <laughs> I think Reagan got shot around the same time. And, uh, you know, the fact that he was president at all was upsetting to me. Um, and one of the things, this was really funny, is that 
for whatever reason, because I guess I just like rubbing salt in, in, in wounds, what I was reading around that time, I found in an old bookstore a paperback book called Diary of an Assassin. We had a guy named George Wallace, who was a governor in uh, the South, who was a segregationist. And he really was sort of an iconic figure of segregation. Um, he ran for president, and there was an attempted assassination of him that failed, but it, it made him uh, paraplegic. Well, the guy who sh shot him was a fellow named Arthur Bremer. And it turns out that Arthur Bremer had actually, was a crazy guy, and he had actually been stalking Nixon, uh, but found it too difficult to get to him. So then he, you know, looks in the paper and sees that George Wallace is at a local strip mall, and he goes down there and shoots him. So I don't know. Yeah, it was sort of like, you know, how does how does that make you feel? You know, George, son of the earth, you know. But at any rate, he went away to prison and everything, but they found that he had a diary during all this time, and they published it. And that's what I was reading in those opening months where I was really depressed. So I was reading the Arthur Rimmer's diary in which every entry he had even though it made no sense in the context of what he was saying, was every entry ended with irony abounds. So I'm reading this loner. Yeah, I'm by myself. I'm alone. I'm I'm I'm, I'm sad. I'm you know everything like that. Uh, it's winter in Iowa. I'm in a you know a horrible little flop house. And then the only other thing I was doing was learning to, to play the ukulele. And. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if any of this is helping to shape an understanding of my aesthetic. So what I started playing, I mean, once I got past the really rudimentary things, I started learning. I was into rockabilly at the time. So I started just doing Buddy Holly stuff and doing it, you know, and, 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 and goofing around and singing and, you know, sort of kooky rockabilly voices and stuff and doing the rhythms on the ukulele. Nobody knows a ukulele player, right? It's like you go to a picnic and it's a bunch of mediocre guitarists and then some some bastard comes up with a ukulele and everyone's going, hey, that looks pretty cool. Let's hang around that guy, you know? <laughs> and so it was very funny to me because a, a, a kind of bad ukulele player is still better than a mediocre guitarist. Um, uh, at a certain point out of curiosity, when I got a better apartment and everything and uh, I had gotten better at playing it, though I was still almost religiously a three-chord guy. It was almost like I thought, after you've learned it, you know, five minutes, it really is just nothing but pretension to try and get better. It was sort of my attitude at the time. The first song I learned was uh, Wild Thing, to give you an idea, which was great because it didn't even really involve that much strumming. So I started wondering what it would sound like to electrify the thing. And so somebody gave me a guy who was a guitarist and was actually, you know, not bad at it, uh, gave me a contact mic and I stuck it on and I managed to plug it into my stereo system. And because it was a shitty little um, contact mic and it was coming through my stereo, it sounded like really bad early electric guitar kind of music. You know, that thing where you're listening to it and you forgive it because you're going, well, this was like 1949 rock and they were doing it in some apartment in Detroit or wherever the hell it is or, you know. 
So it had a weird authenticity to it. It was it was really pretty fantastic to listen to. And so what year was this around? This would have been 1982. Um, I, I was at Iowa from like 80 to, uh, to 82, 80. Yeah, I guess 82. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, after graduate school, though, when I moved to Atlanta, I had a roommate. It was a cousin of mine who actually had, and I don't know why, because I don't think he was very, you know, musical. He had a little... Um, amp that had a outlet on it that's a distortion and so you know it had normal and then distortion and so i plugged it in there and i would play it and it was just cacophonous you know i mean it was just like it was just you know electronic noise and it was fantastic right and i did actually recordings of me just doing the same stuff i'd always done buddy holly but screaming at the top of my lungs with this distorted thing to see what it sounds like. So all this time I had a philosophical attitude about the ukulele. I mean, I really believed that this business of it being both funny and sad and that it embodied some message of human something. To me, it was absurdity and, you know, the laughing, weeping thing. And so when I did this, I thought, well, what? what statement artistically is this? Because I kept listening, I was going, because it's not really a big sound to distort it and amplify it. It's actually as small a sound, as big a sound that a small sound can make, which is different from a small sound being big, you know? And I said, it's really like a flea clutching its skull and screaming as loud as it could. It's still really tiny, but the passion and the anger and the energy is there, you know? So, and I thought, well, what is that statement? And then I thought, well, obviously it's impotent rage. And so once I made that sort of decision that that's what the statement was that was being made, I quit doing it. And I went back to just sort of playing because I thought, okay, the intellectual journey is over. I understand what that is, right? And so I uh, just went back to playing my usual sort of rockabilly rhythmic kind of stuff and some Springsteen rock stuff and it wasn't until it wasn't until the internet in the 90s when we were all discovering search engines and uh thinking up whatever combination of words we could to to look and see what was out there now i at this point there was no ukulele music really available i had found a cliff edwards compilation on a cassette tape someplace uh, but I had found absolutely nothing else. Uh, mm -hmm. But it was the only thing that I had. And even still, it wasn't it, – some of it was ukulele, uh, not not all of it. It was, you know, getting more into the big band sort of era for him. So, And I had never met anybody else who played the ukulele. So I type in ukulele and sex. What popped up was a website called Riot Ukes. Um, which later became the Ukulele Freedom Front, and it was a group of guys out of uh, out of Seattle. And there in the movie, Stace, uh, Casey Quarter in the cow suit is uh, was a member of it. Though he split off from the other guys, and the the it's a whole side of the story that is isn't in the movie. Um, that was a crazy relationship with the guy who actually was the brains behind. Riot Ukes, but Riot Ukes led was 
sort of led me to people would lead me to like pineapple princess who then had a zine an actual paper zine that mm. led me to oliver brown and then i start like connecting and i'm kind of going jesus christ there are all these ukulele players and they're 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 weird you know they're all like individuals um doing compelled and drawn to it and they're not just going oh yeah i play the guitar they're going I play the ukulele, you know, and there were talk of six-string tyranny and that it was an in-your-face statement against, you know, the, the, the riot ukes was actually really nuts because they truly embraced the punk ethos and they would talk about uh, six-string tyranny and that, you know, there's no more punk instrument than the ukulele. And, and I began to find all these other people were also weaned on punk music and taken to the ukulele in the same way. And that just led for years searching the internet for people and finding them all over the country. And every one of them thought they were the only ones doing it. Um, and they all had, you know, cassette tapes at the time is what people were releasing. And I'd send them their $5 and I'd get them. And I amassed a collection of these uh, things and emails, communications with people and talking about it. And I would tell people, friends of mine about it, you know, I'd be talking about this phenomenon and they would say, well, what are you going to do with all this information? And I'd go, I, I don't understand. What do you mean? And their attitude was, well, are you going to write something? And are you going to, and I thought, well, I never really thought, I never really thought of it. It's oh. an interesting thought to do something with all of this. And um, by, by the stage then, are you a filmmaker? Are you a writer? What, what are you doing at this stage? I was always a writer, first and foremost. I mean, I made Super 8 movies when I was a kid. You know, I was a kid in Savannah, Georgia, and Hollywood and film and all those kind of things seemed just out of my reach, you know? And writing was the thing that seemed very doable from wherever I was, you know? So I, I was writing stuff when I was, you know, prepubescent. I, um, I'd always been a writer. It had never occurred to me to do movies. I mean, I thought it'd be cool at some day. I mean, by then I had been writing for the movies for hire, freelance for hire, but then also eventually for Hollywood and for the studios. But it had never occurred to me to try to make a movie or anything. One of the thing, one of the reasons is it seemed to me that a director is, has to answer questions all day long. As people come up and say, well, what do you want this? What do you want that one? Do you want this? And uh, and I thought that would make me anxietous, you know, to have to constantly be answering questions. You know, my fine performance in, in band class was sort of a harbinger of that kind of anxiety. You know, I later would learn after I wrote uh, my book about the big Lebowski, I would later realize you don't you're actually not answering questions you're telling people something you already know because you've set the vision in your head and if somebody says do you want this your your immediately thought is well what works for this movie and since i know what this movie is about yes you do this and it's actually not that big a deal and i had made a short film so i'd written the book and i'd made a short film just testing my whole uh, belief called weeping shriner which also is about laughing and uh, is a comedy about depression is what I called it. And then I met Sean, my co-director, uh, Sean Anderson, and um, 
he had gone to documentary film school and suddenly one day it occurred to me, well, because I had tried writing about the ukulele stuff and I thought, well, the dilemma is you can write about it, but if you're talking about this culture, you really need to hear it to understand just how odd the whole idea of punk ukulele and doing alternative ukulele music is. You just, you know, you need to hear it. So I went and pitched the idea to him and, you know, um, saying that, you know, I've got all this material and he was in Kentucky too. And so we, uh, he just said, yeah, let's do it. And so we started taking trips Now he started just as a technical guy. He was the cameraman and the editor and everything. And he, you know, had an interesting enough sensibility that he was, well, this is, you know, odd bills, odd. Um, yeah, this will be interesting. And then I watched him slowly <laughs> as we interviewed one person after another, because the very first person he said, yeah, you know, careers are made off of interviews like that, you know, and he was sort of laughing. And then the next person, and then the next person, and every single one of these interviews with somebody who would have been, you know, the special featured interview in somebody's documentary somewhere, and ours was filled with nothing but people like that. So it was very funny to watch. Um, we were in Kentucky at that point and then uh, spent years traveling around. I had uh, already gone to the ukulele expos that the uh, Ukulele Hall of Fame Museum had. And so I had started seeing the larger culture and then we went to one and just started interviewing people there. And then, you know, over the course of the years, we would just drive, take road trips or airline flights to meet people and stuff like that. So. What was the most difficult part about making it? Well, it's boring technical stuff, which is that we we filmed it on uh, mini DV. This was before the high def, I don't know what to call it, revolution. But uh, in those days, you know, we were toying with, well, do we want to shoot it on 16 millimeter or tape, you know, or videotape? And 16 millimeter would have been prohibitively expensive. Videotape, the, the videotape that was available looked crappy. It did not look good. It didn't look like what HD, HD, you can't kind of tell the difference um, today, you know. But to get HD, it was available in a very professional way to, to professional, you know, uh, crews of 70,000 and this kind of stuff. And there's no way we could do that, right? And so we came across a... Canon created a camera that was um, mini DV. So it was, uh, and it was as high a quality as you could get without going to um, HD. And we actually did a lot of experiment to see how can we manipulate the video so that it had, we kept talking about what qualities are cinematic, what looks like film, and what can you do to make video look like film. And we finally concluded that it was what I called the cinematic blur, which is that when the hand moves, you see on this video that we're doing, there's a delay and so my hand is a blur. Well, that's a movie thing. And video at the time was so precise, you would move your hand and there would be no blur. So Sean figured out a way for the settings and it had to do with f-stops and this kind of crap that we could make it so that there was a little delayed sort of movement and that was good for us. We thought, okay, that looks like film. 
So we went with that. But then the desktop editing was where the real, the most difficult part was. It was because we were still in the infancy of desktop semi-pro equipment and then desktop editing. And we bought a suite through a company that puts together everything that you need to do a desktop editing on movies, but the motherboard was not compatible with the capture card and it crashed constantly. And of course it was so early in the game, no one that you would call for support understood what the problem was. And if you, during that period of time, talk to other filmmakers uh, who made movies on on desktops, that kind of thing, it was a nightmare for them for that same reason, because nobody really knew. Now, within five years, the whole, all of the, you know, everybody had HD and uh, edit suites on the laptop, and they made it accessible to the average person. And, uh, you know, I was... Ex- I was really a little annoyed because I was going, well, we were that close. We were there just at the end of a period and it was, uh, it was rough. And then everyone, our thing came out and it was going, why doesn't, why didn't you shoot it on HD? And I'm kind of like, <laughs> maybe it wouldn't have been right for the ukulele. Yeah, I suppose not. It's <laughs> well, that was honestly, that's what we sort of said to ourselves is that we kind of liked the fact that it was a budget movie in certain respects, looked budget, you know, who are we kidding? In every respect, it looked budget, but that that it was appropriate because we were dealing with people who were some sometimes just outsider artists or artists who were um, embracing outsider art and were doing it on a budget and that, you know, um, it was actually in keeping with the, the subject. Holly Hunter does an excellent job narrating the film. How did you get her to do that? The human ukulele. So the, the background of all of this is that I'm friends with actually a lot of people who've won Academy Awards. It's very funny to me. <laughs> so, again, I don't know if these stories get too much in the weeds, but but I'll tell you where Hollywood – I'll tell you actually several places where Hollywood sort of has a connection. One is that um, I'm friends with the Cohen brothers. I wrote this book about the Big Lebowski, right? I've known Ethan Cohen since since under freshman year of college, right? So as their career, you know, sort of rose up, and I would be in different sort of situations, they would sort of steer, and they would no longer be writing screenplays and stuff like that for some guy with ten thousand dollars. They were now working for Hollywood and stuff. They would steer work my way and this kind of thing. But I would also, they would also, you know, we were pals. And so I'd hang out on their sets and, uh, and this kind of thing. And so I got in in the early days, Ethan and Joel, Joel was going with Fran McDormand at the time, you know, they'd been in, uh, she'd been in blood simple and they were friends with Holly Hunter and her boyfriend who actually ended up being the guy who directed, uh, the one Hollywood movie that I did get made. Which film was that? It's a movie, you would never have heard of it. It was called Johnny Skidmarks. It was about a a crime scene photographer and uh, had Peter Gallagher and John Lithgow in it. And Fran was in it. In fact, I talk about it at the end in the new afterward to to the big Lebowski book that I wrote. So Ethan had 
even really had no interest in the ukulele at all. Uh, but there was a short story idea I came up with that I never wrote in college called Hector Berlioz uh, P.I. And it was really stupid. It was about uh, the composer, Hector Berlioz, but as a private detective in the 1940s. And it, <laughs> he's got this shock of red hair and, you know, but he's got, you know, a fedora and all this kind of stuff and he's de dealing with a case. And for me at the time, it was sort of like an interesting plot because it would deal with, as a romantic composer, it would sort of be interesting to then deal with sort of Raymond Chandler-like romantic view of the private detective. And it was some college boy kind of idea like that that was interesting and funny, but too stupid to actually pursue until Ethan decided years later <laughs> to do it. And he, he was publishing this book of stories, and he called me up sort of sheepishly and saying, well, here's the problem. I stole the idea from you and wrote it, and I want to pay you for it. And I was at first kind of going, ah, you know, I never did anything with it. That's fine, you know. He had tried to get my, I said, just get them to put my name on it with you. And the publisher didn't want to do that. So he said, no, really, I need to pay you something for it. And, and I just said, this is just awkward. And he said, well, you're working on this ukulele thing. Why don't, you know, put the money toward that. Wow. If, if you look in the credits, there is Hector Berlioz, in addition to Ethan, but Hector Berlioz is listed among the many thanks. So, but Holly was, so in my early Hollywood years, I was at, uh, and it was around the time that I was writing the Big Lebowski book. Oh, the other thing I wanted to say is that I did the weeping and laughing in Barton Fink, which is only important to show that I really got this whole sadness, happiness thing. It's dogged me my whole life, right? So on Barton Fink, if you watch the movie and you hear the guy laughing and weeping behind the wall, that's me doing it. Uh, and it was actually a problem for Ethan and Joel when they were making the movie, kind of going, how can we find someone who understands what this is? And I'd always done voice work for them, just, you know, for shits and giggles. And, and they said, well, let's see if Bill knows. And I'm kind of going, yeah, I know what laughing and weeping is. I've spent most of my adult life doing it. Yes, alone in a room, laughing, weeping. I've got it. And they flew me out there to do it for the, you know, so I'm sitting there laughing and weeping, and that's what's in the movie. So but around that time, so when we do, um, they're doing The Big Lebowski, and my movie was being made, Johnny Skidmarks at that time. And uh, I'm also writing the book about The Big Lebowski and splitting my time between. Fargo was also really big and uh, the Academy Award was up and this is when Fran won her award for that and uh, and Ethan and Joel won it for the screenplay. There was a big Hollywood party that was thrown for Fran. Holly Hunter, who I knew from, you know, their New York days and from, you know, her being uh, the, the ex-girlfriend at this point of, of the guy who directed uh, Skid Marks, shows up with the playwright named Beth Henley. And Beth Henley, who um, won a Pulitzer Prize, is uncomfortable in the Hollywood scene and doesn't want to hobnob. And so Holly, who is a fellow Georgian, comes to this gallant Southern male and says, will you watch over Beth while I make the rounds? And I said, yes. And of course, it was the entire party. And I sat just shooting the shit with Beth Henley on the sofa 
And it was actually my single greatest opportunity to do networking in Hollywood that I ever got the entire time that I worked there. And I suspect on some level, Holly sort of understood that because when we were, when we were trying to decide on narration um, for Rock That Duke, and at one point in the early version, it was me doing, you know, telling my story and all this kind of stuff. And it just kind of didn't really work. And so I said, we, you know, let's boot me, but let me write some copy and then we'll get somebody to write. And I said, it seems like of all the people I know in Hollywood, one of them should be game for it. We'll see. And so I thought about it and I thought, well, actually Holly might do it because, (laughs) and she did, she like, you know, I, I called her up and I said, um, I left a message for her saying, uh, how would you like to do a uh, the voice, the narration of a little bit of text I've written for a movie about punk rock ukulele bands? And she called, I didn't expect her to call back, but she did. And she just said, hey, Bill, this is Holly Hunger. And she said, and she said, I'd love to do it. It sounds like a worthy project. And I'm kind of like going, no, it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, God love her. I came to New York to do it. And, uh, of course, it was Holly Hunter. And the place where we did the recording, you know, they were, like, incredibly excited. And so they had giant fruit for us. They had flowers. They had all kinds of crap. And I'm kind of going, this is a punk rock ukulele documentary. And these people are like, you know, but I tell you something, Holly completely got it. And she sat on the floor with me and started telling me that she really liked what I had written and that it was important that I not, you know, play this up as jokey, that this is, you know, and she's going on. She was really into it. And I got Robert Wheeler, who's in the movie. I called him up and I just said, can I buy a ukulele off of you to give her as a gift? And he gave, he just said, no, I'll give you one. I loved her in all ways. So I gave her a regal ukulele. We took a photo of it and everything like that. So no, Holly was great, insanely generous person. And, and really in retrospect, there's no other voice that you could think of to sort of talk about the ukulele than, than hers. What, what about a favorite moment? in the film god that's really hard my favorite moments were often when we had finished the interviews and they were performing because then you've got time to stop and think about it and think about the people and the fact that you're making the movie and that it's such a crazy idea and and they were oddly they were Those moments I really loved, but the most signature moment of the whole thing was Robert Wheeler's what remained the biggest laugh getter, and it was the space aliens question. Casey Corder had told me that Robert, who's passed to my great sadness, had something. He had a friendship with a guy named Mike Longworth, uh, who had been a luthier at Martin, right? So... Uh, they had created something that uh, called ukulele consciousness. And it was Robert saying, claiming that he had started a religion. It, it was just a, a, a joke to him, but not a ha-ha joke, but it was, it was impish, you know. 
kind of thing on his part. But they had like silk jackets with with ukulele consciousness written, stitched into the back of it. Casey Corda, you know, saw him at one of these uh, expos and said, how can I become a member? And uh, Robert found it really funny and went and got him his own jacket. And so in the in the movie, you know, Casey's showing it off and, and he goes off into his own little thing about what ukulele consciousness is. And Robert had always said it was a religion, but Casey sort of ran with it, saying, well, it's a belief system where aliens brought the ukulele to us, it, that it wasn't the Portuguese bringing it at all. And I'm listening to him, and I'm going, well, I'm he's in a cow suit. I'm not going to argue with him, you know? So, but I got this, by that interview, this idea that Wheeler, who I had not spoken to yet, was crazy messianic nut you know and i was a little nervous about it right i thought this is this could be the the the, you know the charles manson of the ukulele for all i know this is a crazy cult shit you know so eventually and i keep actually kind of putting it off a little bit and finally i call him up and i ask him if he's interested in being interviewed and robert had a very you know a very quiet sort of way of of, uh, understated sort of way of speaking in mumbly sort of, you know, way almost at times and distracted, sort of sounding kind of, you know, way. Yes, I'd be interested. And so I line up and I'm going, well, we're going to be in the area. And he goes, okay, you know, and he tells me that. So I'm sitting there kind of going, okay. And I remember visiting, it was Dave Wasser at the Ukulele Hall of Fame Museum. We were stopping off and staying with them and doing interviews and they knew we were moving on to talk to Robert Wheeler now. They didn't really know Robert Wheeler. They had seen him at some of the things, but I'm telling him he thinks it's space aliens, you know, and this kind of crap. And so, and they're going, wow, really? And so as we're leaving, David had a few beers. I remember him just yelling as we're driving away, don't let him get into your head, man. You know, as we drove away. So, I'm sitting there, and it turns out that Margie Roberts' uh, wife is just saying, you know, he watched your movie Johnny Skidmarks on TV, and he got very excited, and he's uh, he's been really looking forward to it. She's revealing all this stuff that sounds very humanizing and not at all weird and everything. And, of course, I go and I sit, and I'm talking to him, and it's this room filled with ukuleles and talking to him about all this stuff, and I'm holding off on this question because I thought – if he's crazy and I ask him about, you know, space aliens and it all just falls apart and it's not, you know, the whole thing goes, at least I've got a normal interview on the front end. I saved it to the very end. So I'm talking to him and I give him that question. And then he gives that classic answer that is so drawn out. And he was a master of the pregnant pause. I seriously, he attenuates pauses well beyond i mean you're sure that the that that he's overplaying it and he's still i mean he waits until you're in uncomfortable then he waits to lead you through a journey of is he going to say something else and you know and then finally he hits you with it and you realize he's been fucking with you the whole time and so it was like it was fantastically funny and we actually had trouble editing out the explosive laugh that ushered forth from me when he said that. I mean, it was actually sort of a problem in the editing of the thing, you know? 
And a lot of times I would just stay to see that scene, to see how people handled it. It never failed. Biggest laugh getter of the entire movie. I miss Robert. Well, if anyone's wondering what that moment is, they're going to just have to watch the film, I think. Yeah. So they're going to have to buy the movie, which you will be able to buy some actually from Camute.com. Have you, have you kept in touch with anyone from the film? You know, I'm friends with people on Facebook, but no, uh, Robert was the person I kept in touch with most. People used my house to come and stay when they were traveling to do gigs when I was in California. I became sort of known as a place where ukulele players could, you know, stop off. But none of those people were people from the movie. They were uh, people I met after the movie. Would you consider making a sequel, RTU2? No. God knows, though. I mean, we had, like, a lot of interviews that didn't make it into the movie. There were some people who, you know, at the time were saying... Uh, geez, you really, you know, need to do a sequel. But uh, honestly, the movie, <laughs> as as Rose touched on it uh, in her interview with you, uh, I don't know that people were clamoring for a sequel. They wanted me to be the mighty Uke. And they were crushingly disappointed when they saw Rock That Uke and, 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 and I wasn't. So... Um, were you surprised by the response to the film? Yeah, actually, <laughs> I seriously was. Uh, I, I, I seriously was surprised. Uh, in retrospect, I guess I shouldn't have been. But, I mean, it's not like, I don't know how to say it. It felt like something that had nothing to, I don't, I don't know what it was. I don't know if it was something that had nothing to do with the ukulele was being played out. It, it had more, a lot of it had to do with, the people who hated it were people who were, I'll just stereotype them, screw them. Um, you know, they were suburban middle American types who uh, knew the ukulele because they went to Hawaii and um, came back with them and then became uh, focused on Hawaiian culture in that sort of precious way that only white, you know, uh, middle America can when when co-opting, <laughs> yeah. I mean, the ukulele was it, this year it was the ukulele. Ten years before it was Dreamcatchers hanging from their rearview mirrors. You know, uh, they prided themselves on being able to say Kamaka Wiwa Ole and uh, and Shimabakura, and and they would say it in a way that showed it's really all about that, isn't it? You know, and, and so there was also a kind of politically conservative attitude about freaks and punkers and, you know, kids and disrespecting, you know, tradition, whatever it was. It, 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 something like that was going on. That having been said, it was also suggested that since the movie, the movie's premise of that some of the people said was that the ukulele players are losers. I think Dave... Uh, at the end of the movie of with with Uke Fink says that and this notion that it, it speaks to the loser inside us, you know, that the vulnerable, you know, sort of wanting a place in the universe and feeling uh, all that kind of stuff. Dave Wasser said it may be that it just cut a little too close to the bone for some people that mm-hmm. they sure. don't they don't want to think of themselves it, it, that way. I also think the film 
your film came at a really interesting time because it was around that time that these suburbanites took up the ukulele and started their little clubs from going to Hawaii and things. But before that, it had pretty much exclusively been the freaks and geeks of the ukulele in the film. It was, it was just those people. I mean, I know That's myself, growing up in South Africa, I knew nobody who played the ukulele. I was the, the freak who played the ukulele. You know, I think a lot of people who, who did it at that time, for whatever reason, felt that same way. That's right. So yours came out as that this other sort of tangent was taking off. And it, it was just a, a recipe for anarchy in a way, which was, I, I think, quite good. It's interesting because, yeah, uh, I mean, when you think about audiences, I didn't think of the movie when we were making it as being for a ukulele audience, for example. No, it was I, just an interesting film about an interesting subject. Well, it was about, you know, to me it was, well, yeah, I mean, obvious. I mean, people want to know, why didn't you have really good ukulele players? And they'd be sort of, I can play better than that, and this kind of crap. And it was Not really the point. About, it was about being an outsider. It was about feeling, embracing your outsiderness through an instrument that is an outsider instrument and that has this long history of pop cultural abuse of one sort or another, expressing yourself creatively and in that attaining sort of power and a sense of self, you know? Yeah. And that was what it was sort of about. And it was also really very funny because all these people had self-deprecating views of that they were very self-aware of who they were in the universe and why they were you know, doing it, um, they, you know, a lot of them hadn't thought, put all these pieces together until I started talking to them, which was interesting, but mm -hmm. it was clear that that was what it was. It was insecure people who wildly creative and funny attaining confidence through finding a particular medium by which to express themselves. Yeah. I saw myself as in my fantasies, I thought, this would make a great movie to take the college circuit and to trigger college interest in the ukulele because it's a weird, wacky. I mean, I, as I put it, I wanted to find that nexus between hip and weird because mm -hmm. I believe it exists. And that's where the ukulele sort of fell, you know. And I saw people who weren't interested in the ukulele as being the people that you would play to, right? By the time we finished it, there actually was enough of a ukulele community that that was kind of the audience and they were eagerly awaiting the movie and then they saw it and it was sort of like the audience, you know, after the, the opening scene of uh, Springtime for Hitler in the movie The Producers, you know, everyone's just sort of going, what? You know? <laughs> and the degree to which people continued to say how disturbing they found the guy bashing the ukulele you know, on the ground that punctuates, you know, all of the scenes and how disturbing emotionally that was for them. I'm going, okay. So yeah, the, the dust up, the, the, the dust up was really extraordinary. What, I mean, people not liking it and sort of feeling that the movie was, you know, not their cup of tea is one thing. They really felt that we were bad people for having made it that it was bad for the ukulele was the phrase that people would use. Well, that's it. Like I, I mean, we, we met up uh, recently in New York and we were talking and uh, like I said then, if, if someone really 
is interested in anything, whether it be the ukulele or whatever it is, I would expect them to be interested in every aspect of that thing. Right. And, and to me, that is, you know, your film, I mean, The Mighty Uke is, a, is a, a fine film in its own right, but it doesn't have the kind of positive message that Rock That Uke has, in my opinion. You know, there, there are different ways of doing everything, and there are different people who embrace things in different ways. And, and you know, yeah. in my opinion, if, if you love the ukulele, you'll love Rock That Uke, and you'll love Mighty Uke, and you'll love everything to do with ukuleles. Yeah, yeah, all things ukulele. Yeah, yeah. I agree. It's also sort of weird because I think more than a lot of musical instruments, though I, I don't, you know, it's not entirely the case, I suppose, but I think more than a lot of other instruments, the ukulele has a very personal connection to, pe- to the people who play it. Mm. And they develop a sort of proprietary emotional feeling about it, you know? When people really hated Rock That Uke, their, their comment would be, I can't believe that you would mock my ukulele, is the way that they would do it. They wanted, they felt that what we were saying about it was at odds with some attitude they had about it, and that we were encroaching on an intimate relationship. People who feel a deep connection with the instrument, mm. and private connection with the instrument and uh, on a deeply emotional sort of level and when people see the movie who are of the mind of the people in the movie it connects with them profoundly if it's at odds with what that connection is they feel assaulted on some level that makes the reaction more understandable i think yeah and I got that while watching the film last night. I actually said to my brother, I was like, you know, there's no other instrument that is a mirror for someone's personality. But yeah, I mean, one of the things that I talked about uh, in that Guardian piece that I wrote about it is that I, I described the fact that it you hold it close to your heart and you cradle it almost like it's an infant. And so there's a sense of protection that you feel about it and a closeness to to you emotionally, you know? And the problem is, all, all these people who dislike it, uh, I still feel are weird people by virtue of the fact that they're sort of drawn to it, you know, and that yeah. you can... Well, like you said, maybe Dave is right. Maybe it, it is yes. cutting too close to the bone and they're just thinking, well, illuminating something they don't want illuminated. Well, one of the things that the aspects of it that got dropped was we did interview um, people who were normal, if I can use that term, um, you know, Jim Belloff and people like that, who uh, mm. we lost just because, frankly, they, they you know, we needed, you, you could only have so much time, and we thought, okay, let's stick with the, 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 the people who were really More sort of powerful on, characters. On, the, on the outsider thing. But yeah. one of the points I wanted to make was that it's a spectrum, and at one end, the people who are presumably normal are all sort of shy on some level and insecure on some level in a fairly, you know, normal sort of socially acceptable way, but that it's a continuum. It's still the same thing. The same urge is drawing people to the instrument, you know, whether it's I'm completely weird and I need a connection or I'm a little shy and I need a connection. I totally agree with that. I think I'm both. Um, in, in your experience, then, is there one thing all ukulele players have in common? 
or is it those two things? Well, obviously the movie had a particular take on it, you know, of, <laughs> of that, that there is, you know, uh, Neil Armstrong goes to the moon and yet Woody wants to find, you know, and he's looked at the enormity of, of things and he comes back and he finds solace in, in the, one of the smallest musical instruments, you know, and one that you can hold close to your heart and, and stuff like that. You know, is there a ukulele personality? I mean, at the time that we made it, of course, the it depends on what society's view of the instrument is at that moment, right? So if it is purely an ethnomusicological thing for, you know, the, uh, the people of Hawaii, that's one thing, you know. If it's you're in the 20s and all the other kids are playing it, you know, and it's a rowdy, raucousy thing to be playing. There's that. If it's the era of Tiny Tim or or whatever, and it's seen as something that no one touches with a ten foot pole, a particular type of person is going to go to, for it for that. And now, in the era where, as you said, you know, there's a huge wave of everybody. You know, tons of people are playing it. It's all over YouTube and stuff. And it's uh, been become very normalized and it is not at all the sort of jokey, you know, it doesn't get a laugh when you when you mm -hmm. mention it in the same way that it used to. That's a different kind of culture, which leads you to say there's something then that that sort of separates you from there being a ukulele type and focusing more on what is it about the instrument itself that draws people at these different times in history, you know. And in some weird level, it seems connected to what has made it for most of its existence, you know, a slightly embarrassing family member that you love. But, you know, it's sort of like, well, is this really do we want them to come to this party or should we just sort of catch them on the weekend? And I don't know. Well, what about personally then? What does what does the uke mean to you right right now in this moment? All of the things that I've said. Like, I've always been one of these people who, you know, I go through phases of playing it a lot or not playing it a lot, you know, depending on what's going on in my life and how busy I am. I've been playing it like a motherfucker since since Trump was elected. I really have. The degree to which I now keep one around and will play it during the day. What's interesting is that my hand, I used to always be a pretty good strummer. But I've gotten just enough arthritis in my wrist that I've lost my strum. And so I have a more of a thumb strum kind of a thing that works fine, but it's a very different sound because it's the pad of the thumb and not fingernail driven. And it, I can't I used to be a pretty fast strummer, not as fast as you, but I was pretty good. Uh, and now most of the stuff I play is if it's a good day and the, the weather permits my my wrist to work, I'll play something but uh, fast. But mostly it's softer sort of rhythmic stuff. But it's just you play that way. It's more about soothing yourself than it is about um, exercising, you know, demons, which is the way it used to be. Well, actually, well, speaking of songs, have you got one for us? Yeah, uh, we talked about this. This is so I've written a few ukulele songs just out of curiosity, not a lot, uh, and they're all sort of goofy. I played, I think, one for you, which was 
the song for a, an ice cream truck. And uh, I've done lullabies for nieces. There was a lullaby for a, another niece who I was supposed to write a lullaby for and then didn't until she got married. And then, you know, I played it at her wedding. And there are a few other things like that. You know, Burl Ivesy song about called Little Dog Hill and all these kind of things. But it's nothing like I would call a body of work. <laughs> a body of work. However, uh, the very first one I wrote back in, uh, I think, 82 was I um, tried to write what I thought at the time would be a ukulele sounding type old timey song. But again, not really being a particularly musical guy, I uh, I structured the song according to what I knew, which were Buddy Holly songs. And so it's sort of got a more modern structure to it, but evokes all kinds of old timey, you know, sort of ideas. I called it On the Veranda with Miranda, though those words themselves do not appear in the song. I, hopefully I can do this without screwing up, but it's... I like the moon to hover in June Bathe you in silvery light And I like it when you kiss me again Oh, everything's just about right Your lips red as wine, your cheek against mine Gosh, what a beautiful sight the wind blows your hair and I dance like a stare. Oh, everything's just about right. I just love to be alone with you. With no one else around except us two. Dance beneath the summer sky so serene. I wouldn't trade this night for anything. And dear, when you smile, my heart jumps a mile, I love you well, I just might. The evening is young and we've only begun, and everything's just about right. Fantastic. Which I managed to work into Johnny Skidmarks. Really? And into uh, Weeping Shriner, the short film I made. Oh, and, yes. I, and I occasionally would get royalty checks from BMI for that because it was played on the radio during a big accident scene. So there was carnage everywhere, and then it's me playing the ukulele <laughs> and singing that song, and I would get little BMI checks. Nice. Okay, yeah. I have one final question then. Yes. We were talking about ukuleles mirroring personalities. So if you yourself were a ukulele, what type would you be? And can you describe yourself? Holy shit. Uh, <laughs> well, personally, yes. Here's what I would say. All right. Because I'm torn. You know, am I going to be a Martin 5K? Am I going to be uh, my MO or, you know, any of these uh, guys? Or will I be a harmony ukulele with a stencil on me? 
sounding like crap and that somebody has put, you know, that uh, Roy Smek has put his face on the headstock. I would like to think that I would be a vintage Martin that had been knocked around a lot and had a lot of scuff marks on it. Maybe the keys didn't work all that great and you had to like stick a little tiny piece of paper or something to create the tension again. Maybe possibly somebody uh, screwed it up by painting on it at some point and somebody else sort of then took varnish to kind of remove that, but it also took off some of the original varnish on the ukulele. And it's, it's so so that it would be a ukulele that had lived uh, a, a life filled with uh, both distressed and was much loved, and, but at its core was some quality workmanship. <laughs> I could not expect a better answer than that. Thank you. <laughs> not a lot of mother of pearl inlay or anything like that. Let's no, no, no. We're talking like a, a style O, style one at, at the top. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> well, thanks very much for talking to me, Bill. It's sure. been a real pleasure. All right, man. Oh, that's been great. Thank you. All right. We'll be in touch. Mr. William Preston Robertson, everybody. A true southern gent. As I mentioned during our conversation, there are a limited number of DVD copies of Rock That Uke available now at kamuke.com. That's K-A-M-U-K-E dot com. If you haven't seen it, I urge you to check it out. And if you have seen it and didn't like it the first time, maybe give it another chance. Please subscribe to Ukulele Stories on your preferred platform so you never miss an episode, and give us a rating if you're enjoying the show. Until next time, stay weird and keep on strumming.